Hey folks, I'm here with Dr. Peter Frumhoff, the Chief Climate Scientist at the Union of Concerned Scientists. Now, Peter, you recently bought an electric vehicle, and I'm sure you've been thinking about it for a while, but what factored into your decision-making process, and what was the deciding factor for you in taking the plunge? Uh, well, I bought a 2016 Chevy Volt, not to be confused with the Chevy Bolt, Bolt. <laughs> and I love this car. I bought it both because it's important to walk the talk and do what I can on an individual basis to reduce emissions, and this is one way to do it, mm -hmm. an important way to do it. I also bought it because it made financial sense. There are wonderful and now continuing federal tax credits, as well as here in Massachusetts, state tax rebates, which make the car utterly consistent with other cars in its class that aren't EVs. And so it's, um, it's a great buy. It's a great car to drive, and it enables me to um, save money by not filling up at the gas tank and feel good about modeling the kinds of clean energy choices we can all make. So you've given me the pros. Give me one con. Well, for me, there are very few. I happen to love this car, and I really have few regrets about it. The one thing about a Chevy Volt is that it has both a gas tank and a battery. So the gas tank provides an extra resource if you run out of electricity. That's a good thing, but it means that there's very little space in the car for passengers because these take up a lot of space. So the back seat, for example, which is nominally for three people, there's a hump in the middle because of the space for the battery and you really don't want to sit there. So it's really a four-seater as opposed to a five-seater. Okay, so you probably don't want to get a Great Dane. You don't want to get a Great Dane or force your friends to sit in the middle of the car. Okay, very good. Well, thanks, Peter. Uh, we look forward to hearing more from you in January about how you're holding fossil fuel companies responsible for their emissions. But today, it's all about electric vehicles. Welcome to the Got Science Podcast. I'm your host, Colleen MacDonald, and you guessed it. Today is all about cars, specifically electric vehicles, or EVs. And our correspondent, Shreya Dervasala, will be announcing our 2017 Science Defenders after the interview. I'll give you a sneak preview of one of them. He's 17 years old and has already been standing up for science for a number of years. Every year for 10 days, the city of Los Angeles welcomes hundreds of gearheads and journalists, car makers and car buyers, for the LA Auto Show. Manufacturers debut their new models, dealers learn what's trending, and curious attendees can take test drives, all in 870,000 square feet of floor space in downtown LA. There was a certain electricity in the air at this year's auto show, as more and more manufacturers presented new models of electric cars. Senior engineer David Reichmuth represented UCS and our drive to make electric cars more affordable and accessible for all. Our correspondent, Abby Figueroa, caught up with David at the convention center to ask him a few questions about the current state of EVs, what the future holds, and the meaningful difference between a Chevy Bolt and a Chevy Volt. David also talks about his real-life experience as an electric car owner. Now I'll let Abby take the wheel for a few. Thanks, Colleen. I'm Abby Figueroa with the Union of Concerned Scientists, and I'm here at the LA Auto Show with our senior engineer, Dr. David Reichmuth. Hey, David. Welcome to the podcast. Hey, Abby. 
So we've been here for a couple of days and there's lots of buzz out there. I saw lots of really cool concept cars and a lot of models. What were you excited to see? Well, I was excited to see, I mean, there are a number of electric vehicles out there, new electric vehicles that are either going to be for sale this year or will be for sale in the next couple of years. On the other hand, uh, I was also struck by the fact that a lot of the electric vehicle announcements had less fanfare than other years. That's in part because we're getting more models out there. There's now 30 plus models of plug-in vehicles available. So it's becoming a less of, of a new thing. Another thing that I saw was that we're starting to get vehicles in different sizes. There are a lot of the vehicles, especially initially, smaller hatchback electric cars. We're now seeing an electric minivan, plug-in SUVs. So starting to get to some of the bigger size cars and some of the different uses of cars. So definitely, it sounds like the EV market, the electric vehicle market, is evolving. Yeah, it, we're about five to six years into the market for electric vehicles. And so there are more options, more automakers putting cars out there. Some of the automakers are on their second generation of electric vehicles, which is great. So we're starting to get to the point where this is starting to take off, but we definitely see a lot more gasoline cars still on that showroom floor. So when I read auto news, I see numbers that say stuff like the EV market is you know, less than 1% of all of the cars sold in the United States. So the EV market's evolving, but that's still a really tiny number for something that supposedly is really important. Why are the sales still so low? Well, I mean, that number is a little misleading because, first of all, the automakers don't make the same effort everywhere in the U.S. So if you look at a place like California that has been a leader both in the policy side and on incentives, sales of EVs are almost 5% of new cars in California and even higher in some of the cities in California. And then we also have not all automakers making electric cars or making good efforts to sell electric cars. So we have some automakers like GM, Nissan, Tesla that are selling a lot of cars, others like Honda, Hyundai that are, are lagging behind. So that's something that's holding back sales. Also, these cars aren't available everywhere in the US, and that's an important factor. I did a report a year and a half ago on where these cars were available for sale, and outside of California, there were much fewer options for electric vehicles. Now that's changing. We're seeing more cars available outside of California, but it's been a slow process. Definitely a slow process. Tesla seems to get a lot of the attention, but you yourself are a owner of a Chevy Volt. Oh no, Chevy Bolt. Okay, I always get those two confused. So tell me a little bit about what that's been like. And also what's the difference between the Volt and the Bolt? Yeah, it's an unfortunate marketing decision by Chevy to, to name them so closely together. Um, the Volt with a V as in Victor is a plug-in hybrid. So it'll run on electricity for about 50 miles and then transition to using a gasoline engine. The Bolt with a B is a all electric battery electric vehicle. It'll go about 240 miles on a full charge. And I have that latter car, the Chevy Bolt. So, I mean, some of the steps I had to take to sort of think about getting an electric car, um, first I had to see like, where could I plug it in? So I was lucky I had a place in my garage where I could put in a charging station. But, you know, the other thing is I needed it to be able to do all the things I need my car to do. It had to take my kids with all their sports gear when needed. Mm -hmm. Sometimes I have to go from our office to Oakland, to Sacramento, to meet with policymakers. 
And so it had to be able to make that trip. So those are some of the considerations I had to take in, into account when looking to go to an electric car. Yeah, I'm definitely seeing a lot more electric vehicles out on the road, but you know, I've got to tell you, for someone like myself who is a renter without a garage, who actually is in the market for a new car in the next year, um, it's just not the right type of car for me yet. When do you think there will be more options for someone like me who doesn't have a place to park the car and to charge it every night? The electric car is probably not right for everyone right now. And so uh, there's two components to that. One is that we need to see electric cars in, in sort of different types of cars so that if you're looking for a minivan, if you're looking for a pickup truck, you know, right now you don't have any options for an electric pickup truck. Um, so we need more variety of models, uh, more manufacturers to offer electric vehicles. But the other part of it is infrastructure. So not everyone has a place to plug in a car. And so for some of the cases, it'll take a while before we have either the fast charging infrastructure so that you can recharge quickly in a public charging setting or to retrofit apartment buildings um, and parking lots so that there is charging at your home. So that'll take time. So at this point, we really just want people to look into whether or not there is an electric option. People might not realize how many options there are out there right now in terms of vehicles to look at what their situation is for plugging in at home and to take a fresh look at it because things have changed even in the last couple of years. One of the criticisms or, yeah, one of the criticisms I hear often about electric vehicles is that they're so much more expensive. Is that true? There definitely are more expensive electric vehicles, but it does depend on what car you're looking at. There are luxury EVs that are very expensive. In general, the electric cars are a little bit more expensive than the gasoline models because of batteries are more expensive uh, right now. That's changing. Batteries are getting cheaper. We also have state and local uh, and federal incentives that help bring the cost down to make it more comparable to a gasoline car. The other factor is that these cars are cheaper to fuel. So I crunched the numbers on the cost of gasoline and the electric rates in the 50 largest cities around the U.S., and found that on average, switching from gasoline to electricity would save about almost $800 a year in fuel costs. Oh, that's significant. Yeah, it is. Yeah. So in places, not just in Oakland, not just in Los Angeles, but in cities all across the country then. Yeah, everywhere we looked, there was uh, an electric rate option that was cheaper than gasoline to fuel the car. That's interesting. So these cars are getting cheaper to fuel, or are cheaper to fuel, and they're getting cheaper to buy than if these incentives that are available by the state and the feds continue to be available. Yes, and they're also um, can be cheaper to maintain. When you look at an all-electric car versus a gasoline car, you're switching a gasoline engine for an electric motor, which means that you get rid of oil changes, you get rid of spark plugs, you get rid of timing belts, you get rid of a lot of these parts of the car that need to be maintained, that are expensive to replace or repair, and you're substituting that with batteries and an electric motor. And the electric motors require little to no scheduled maintenance. So there's also the maintenance cost aspect of electric vehicles that can save people money. Another thing that uh, I've really noticed owning an electric vehicle is that I don't go to the gasoline station. Hmm. I don't have to fill up the car. I don't have to worry about taking it in for an oil change. And so just the savings of time and not having to think about those things is a bonus. So I can, you know, I come home, I plug it in in my garage. The car's smart enough to know to turn on and start charging in the middle of the night when the electricity is the cheapest. 
And when you get there in the morning, it's full. And that's all you have to think about it. Now, I noticed that when we were walking around the convention center here, looking at the various electric vehicle options that are out there, you know, once you pop the hood, when you sit inside, they look really different. And one thing you mentioned to me that I thought was fascinating was even though, so there is about 30 or so options available right now in the U.S. market, but there are actually hundreds of manufacturers in other countries making electric vehicles today. So we don't even, here in California and the U.S., we don't even know, we can't see the full range of these cars that are out there. What's going on in the rest of the world that isn't happening here? Well, I mean, especially in countries like China, are really pushing electric vehicles forward, and there's a lot of manufacturers that are making cars for those markets. And so electric vehicles aren't just happening in the U.S. It's happening around the world. And the automakers know that the future of transportation is, is electric. There's a number of countries that are pushing the automakers to go even quicker to electric vehicles like China and France. So this is a revolution that's going to happen. There is this question of what's going to happen in the U.S. because there's some pushback on uh, things like the federal tax credit. And while we're going to trend, the world is going to transition away from petroleum to electricity, there are things we can do in the U.S. to either to accelerate that change or things we can do to, to make it slower in the U.S., and that's just going to, if we do put barriers in place, it's not going to kill the electric vehicle, but it will possibly slow it down in the U.S., and that's going to harm U.S. drivers, U.S. manufacturers, and the country as a whole. So you said that this revolution is underway, this electric vehicle revolution. Yeah. I feel like sometimes at a place like the L.A. Auto Show, where it's a lot about consumerism and buying the coolest, newest, hottest new car, we kind of forget why this is happening. Why do we have to transition to electric vehicles? Why is it so important that this happens in the next couple decades? So, I mean, for the, for the U.S., the transportation is an increasingly large part of the total emissions from the country. And so we need to meet our, our climate change goals. We, we need to transition away from petroleum to a cleaner fuel source like electricity. And in places like California, there's also the concern around air quality. Uh, and so there, there's uh, multiple reasons why we need to make that transition. And we really can't do it unless we, we get rid of, long term, get rid of, of the gasoline engine. Short term, we need to make sure that both we encourage this transition, but also make sure that the gasoline cars that are out there are as efficient as they can be. That does make sense. So eventually we're going to have to move away from gasoline powered to electric powered everything, almost everything, well, at least or as for much as we can. At least for personal transportation, yeah. That makes sense. So airplanes, ocean liners, all the other big transportation sources, that's going to take longer. It's going to take longer. And we need to address things like airplanes trucks. and trucks yeah, and yeah. goods movements, trains. We need to address that as well. The good news for personal transportation is that you know, the solution's are already out there. You know, we, we, we saw them. We're yeah, seeing we, them right now. They're, they're, they're you know, yeah. just next door on that showroom floor. We'll be back in a moment with the second half of our interview. You're listening to the Got Science podcast, brought to you by the Union of Concerned Scientists. More at gotsciencepodcast.org. And now a shameless plug. UCS is making your wildest dreams come true this holiday season with adorkable gifts that support independent science. Head to our online store for cozy hoodies, clever tees, and stocking stuffers like mugs, pint glasses, and bumper stickers. 
and we have Got Science t-shirts. You can find us at store.ucsusa.org. Now back to our interview. One thing that also struck me, we were walking by that exhibit, do you remember, um, where it talked about the history of the LA Auto Show? And they had a photo of an ad from the early 1900s of an electric coupe. And it said that in 1907, at the first LA Auto Show, there were two electric vehicle models out on the showroom floor. And so I had no idea that electric vehicles had been around for that long. Yeah, I mean, in the early days, I mean, we had electric cars, we had uh, gasoline cars, even steam-powered cars at one point. Steam-powered? Yes. <laughs> that would have been a very different L.A. then. <laughs> yeah. But, you know, we, we, we transitioned to sort of all gasoline cars pretty quickly. But uh, it's only been recently that we've, we've moved back to uh, electric cars. So pretty much 2010 was sort of the first mass market reintroduction of, of the electric vehicle with the Nissan Leaf and the Chevy Volt. But now uh, we have you know, about 30-plus models of, of electric cars out there on the market. Is 2010, is that when the zero-emission vehicle rules went into place? How does, how does that fit in? Well, the, the zero-emission vehicles have been placed in California and in, in nine other states, including Oregon, Massachusetts, New York, and a number of other states. And they've been around for long, longer than, than 2010, but what... What they do require is for the large auto manufacturers to start to offer electric cars, plug-in hybrids, battery electric, and fuel cell electric vehicles. And that's one of the reasons why we've seen these vehicles in California first, is because the zero emission vehicle regulation has pushed the manufacturers to offer them here and offer them in greater numbers. So the market has benefited from that government push to accelerate the purchases of these cars. Yeah, we've had the push of regulations to help bring these cars to market so that auto buyers have the option to choose a cleaner vehicle, to choose a vehicle that costs less to refuel. At the same time, we have the incentive programs to try to help make it easier for people to buy the vehicles. So the incentives are, is, that, is it cash back or how does that actually work? There's a number of mechanisms. So at the federal level, we have the federal tax credit, so that comes off of your, your taxes. If you lease a car, um, it actually is part of the uh, lease and financing agreement. At the state level, it can be a rebate. Some states have a, a tax credit as well, a state tax credit. So that the state incentives vary. Um, and then also some utilities even offer either uh, rebates on cars or rebates on charging infrastructure. So you mentioned utilities, so that reminds me of what you said earlier, right? So your utility bill might go up because you have an electric car plugged into your home at night, but you're going to be spending less on gasoline, and you can get some help, savings, to make that total purchase cost be less. So there's a lot going for electric vehicles. There's a lot of things to kind of make that purchase a more appealing one. Yeah, there are. That's good to hear. Um, I saw one fact on the UCS website that struck me as interesting. It said that 42% of Americans fit the profile for an electric vehicle driver. Can you tell me, tell me a little yeah. bit more about that? Well, we did a, a survey, um, and we looked at whether people needed to um, carry less than four passengers because at the time we did the survey, there weren't options like electric minivans that there are now. We looked at the need to haul uh, or to tow and then we also looked at the access to parking and 
the access to parking where they could plug in a car. And that by far was the, the, the largest factor is whether people had a place to plug in. But when you put all those things together, about 42% of Americans had a place to plug in and fit the profile of someone who could uh, use an electric vehicle. So big picture here, there's more options. There's a lot of people who fit the profile. It's getting cheaper to buy, it's cheaper to fuel. And there's a lot going on at the state level and nationally to help move this along. But we could see a little bit more, <laughs> probably, we, right? We, we could. And I mean, I think long term, it just makes a lot of sense for us to go from gasoline to electricity. I mean, if you were starting with a clean slate and designing our transportation system, it would just make a lot of sense to do electricity at this point. But that's not where we are. You know, we have to transition from the incumbent technology, gasoline, to electricity. Now, I mean, I have a four-year-old daughter, and so you know, she sees us pull into the driveway and pull into the garage and plug in the car, and that's what she, she sees. That's what she thinks is the normal of how you use a car, is you, you plug it in. That's, so yeah, normal for her <laughs> is you plug in the car, you plug in the phone, and yeah. <laughs> that's her life. Yeah, that's, I mean. That and, will be her life. <laughs> yeah, but it's going to take us a time, a little bit of time, before we transition all the way. When do you think we'll get there? We're in 2017 now. Are we going to see this transition in our lifetime, assuming you and I live till we're very old? <laughs> we will. We'll see that transition. It's, you know, we're already at the point where a good number of people can't pick an electric vehicle at this point. And I think what's happening both in the U.S. and abroad, you know, w within the next decade or so, I think we're going to see that the new car showroom transition to where many more options are available that can plug in. And I think once people understand you know, how much they can save, how much better the car is for the environment, you know, these cars are also just more fun to drive, mm. easier to maintain. I think once people understand and get to experience that these are frankly better cars, that's what's really gonna make that transition happen. You know, we're not there yet. There are still cost issues. There are still issues with, can everyone plug in a car like you yourself have? So we need to make sure that those policies and incentives are in place so that we can try to accelerate that transition as, as much as we can, but it will happen. So what should our listeners and our UCS supporters think about when they are listening to this and thinking what their next car purchase will be? Well, I think the biggest thing is just to consider the electric vehicle. Go take I a mean, look. Yeah, and go take a look and, and you know, take a look at where you could plug in. Can you plug in? Not everyone's going to be able to, to plug in right now, but take a look at what it's going to take. Look at your local utilities electricity rates. Look at all the options that are available from the different car makers. And at least sort of put it in the mix when you're considering, if you are considering a new car, consider a, a plug-in vehicle. Because it might not be your next next car. Maybe it's your next car. <laughs> it's sooner than you think, right? The sooner. electric vehicle could be sooner than you think. Exactly. <laughs> All right, Dave. Hey, well, thank you so much for coming on to the podcast. And I guess have a great time in your last few days here at the auto show. Thanks. It was a pleasure. Okay. Well, back to you, Colleen. And now, Shreya Dervasula announces our 2017 Science Defenders. Well, we've arrived at the last month of this wild year, which means it's time to announce our Science Defenders of the Year. These are the brave people and groups who've taken a stand for science and fought tirelessly for the public good. So, drumroll please! Here are, in no particular order, our five Science Defender winners for 2017. Number one, 
Bethany Wigan for her work preserving federal data. Bethany is the founding director of the University of Pennsylvania program in the environmental humanities. She told us the day after President Trump's election, she was leading a discussion among her students. They wondered, how safe would federal data on climate change be under a Trump administration? These questions led Bethany to co-launch the Data Refuge Project to preserve such data. She and her team held data rescue events to capture and store information on federal websites throughout the year. And Bethany says she's keeping the project going to address larger questions about data reservation and literacy. Number two, Shutescat Martinez for fighting for his generation. Shutescat is only 17, but he is already a rapper, an accomplished public speaker, an author, and a plaintiff in a landmark lawsuit against the U.S. government. The suit was filed by a group of children making the case that their constitutional rights have been violated by inaction on climate change. Shutescat says he's just a regular kid, but he already has powerful stories on how he's seeing the effects of climate change. If the plaintiffs win, the government must implement a climate recovery plan, and Shutescat says that's only fair. It's his generation that will reap the most intense consequences of climate change yet to come if we don't make serious changes now. Number three, Robin Wilson for standing up to EPA Administrator Scott Pruitt. Robin is a professor of risk management at Ohio State University. She also served on the EPA Scientific Advisory Board, appointed by former administrator and recent podcast guest, Gina McCarthy. This fall, Administrator Pruitt created a new policy that bars service on EPA advisory boards from anyone who has an EPA grant. That's ridiculous, says Robin, whose grant has nothing to do with her advisory role. When she received an impersonal email this fall inviting her resignation from the board, she dug in her heels. Robin says she was hired by an administrator, and if Scott Pruitt is so attached to his new policy, he should fire her himself. She still hasn't resigned. Number four, Beto Lugo Martinez for helping Californians breathe easier. Beto is from Imperial County, California, which grows much of the nation's food and has some of its most polluted air. One in five children in the county has asthma, he told us. Beto is a community scientist and an environmental justice advocate with the nonprofit Comité Civico de Valle. To help residents minimize their exposure to pollution, Beto has worked to install and maintain 40 low-cost air quality monitors throughout Imperial County. He also teaches residents how to use the data they collect. Because of these monitors, Imperial County residents can see when the air is too polluted for them or their children to be outside for long periods of time and they can take the data to their elected officials and demand reductions in emissions. Number five, attendees of the People's Climate March and the Marches for Science for exercising their people power. For two consecutive Saturdays last spring, millions took to the streets to advocate for sound environmental policies and federal funding for science. The Marches for Science drew millions of attendees around the world, and the following week, the D.C.-based People's Climate March brought together a united coalition of labor, faith leaders, indigenous groups, frontline communities, and scientists 
to demand action on climate change. Many of these people had never participated in a protest or considered joining a movement to stand up for science, but they stepped up. In fact, in the week between the marches, many people took part in a week of action, calling and visiting their elected officials and planning to keep the momentum going. Here's a big Got Science podcast thank you to all of you who made your voice heard to defend science. Okay, that's our five. What do you think? Did we miss anyone who you thought stood up for science in 2017? Feel free to tweet at UCSUSA to give us your recommendations. And for photos and snippets of interviews with each winner, check out ucsusa.org defenders. Well, that's it for this episode of Got Science. We're taking an extra week over the holiday, so our next episode will air on January 9th. I'd like to congratulate and thank our science defenders, Beto Lugo Martinez, Bethany Wigan, Shuteska Martinez, Robin Wilson, and all the attendees of the People's Climate March and the March for Science, and I will not name them all. Special thanks to senior vehicles engineer, Dr. David Reichmuth. Our correspondent was Abby Figueroa. Science Defenders was brought to you by Shreya Dervasula. Editing and music by Brian Middleton. Research and writing by Pamela Wirth. Our executive producer is Rich Hayes, and I'm your host, Colleen MacDonald. Thanks, and see you next year.